Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. Starting on a light note, it served as a fond farewell this week to a man who has served the Peoria community and its youth for decades. A send-off for Peoria Park District Elite Program creator and director Carl Cannon this past week. God is good all the time. So that's the proof. That's where I come from. This is a faith-based, has been a faith-based effort. And I don't apologize for that because we're not to start there. It would have ended many years before today. In my remarks, I'm going to read a statement that reflects a bit of the past, present, and future related to elite. I want to read this statement to make sure that one, I recognize key people who have helped build elite from the very beginning. So I'm going to start again by recognition. God is good all the time. I cannot believe I'm standing here for the past 21 years, five days, and a week I've reported to a Peoria Park District facility. It's been such a tremendously rewarding experience. I've had such a great opportunity to work with amazing people and watch these caring, kind, generous people help the Peoria community in so many ways over so many years. So can we give the Park District team a round of applause, please? Trustee Sierra, thank you. I want to also thank a couple people that helped make this happen. They are my park board president, who I don't see present right now, Mr. Robert Johnson, and the vice president, Ms. Jackie Petty. Both are visionaries who saw something from a prison guard who said to this old prison guard 21 years ago, they said, let's do it. You see, the first half of my life, Emily talked about some of it. I was in a, as my adult life, I was a prison guard. You've heard me say my story before. But one day, I can only describe it as an encounter with God. I no longer wanted to be good at locking people up. I wanted to be part of the answer that kept kids out of, and adults out of our institutions. I also have to thank the name on the building behind me, the late Bonnie Noble, who allowed me to do what I love to do, and that's give kids hope. Emily Cahill and Brent Wheeler have been great partners in this Park District program, serving the community throughout these years. This, you should know, is the only Park District in the United States of America where this type of programming has been allowed. So one more round of applause for my park district. Obviously, I couldn't have done this alone. Over the years, there have been literally hundreds of volunteers. A few people here today have been with me from almost day one. I see Ernest Starks. I see Tony Jenkins, my brother Bill. And there's this person out there, she thinks 
She's a boss of me and has been a steadfast anchor to Elite from the very beginning. Again, she thinks she's the boss of me. And that's my aunt, Sherry Cannon. Can you give her a ride? We've had some extremely generous donors and supporters over the years. The Baldwins are out there. Thank you, Bonnie. Who literally, thank you. Leader Gordon Booth called me for a meeting a year or so ago. She told me that she had been watching the work I've been doing in the city since she was a little girl. I think she called me old. <laughs> and she wanted to direct some state funding our way to support elite and the good work we were doing in the community. These dollars have enabled me to create a team of the most dedicated people I know. They love what we do, and they love the kids we work with. Please me, allow me to introduce the elite game changers. <laughs> yeah. And last, but definitely not least, I have to thank my beautiful wife of 39 years. Folks, although I did it, 39 years, she still lets me come home. <laughs> Melinda and my daughter, Summer and Danielle, Danielle never complained. When I was away from home for so many days and nights, helping others, serving the youth, adults alike, and helping other people's kids, they were always there for me. And so uh, to my lovely wife, I say thank you for allowing me to do what I do. Love you. Now what? What's next for Lee? Uh, well, we're now an independent 501c3 called Elite Community Outreach, Inc. I got INC behind it. We are leasing space at Peoria Dream Center where we run the Game Changer Alternative Safe School for at-risk students. You want to see a group that's making a difference in this city come down to the Dream Center, second floor. Now that we are standalone, independent, not-for-profit, we are looking to the future. I wanted to also take this opportunity to recognize the elite team, many of whom are with us today. This team are all kind of hard generous with their time and talent. Most importantly, each of them expressed deep, a deep caring spirit to others. I'm also excited to have this team of leaders who will rep be representing the elite community. I want to introduce our leader, our board chair, Mr. Tom Marshall, standing over there. So what's next? We will continue to run elite reentry where men and women looking for a second chance or another chance can come and get soft skills and other training. We will continue with the elite K-8 compliance program in selective schools where our team will help American heroes teachers manage behavior so they can 
effectively teach. You know, Elite started, as I close, as an idea just about 20 years ago. Today I stand before you representing the past, present, and now future of Elite. So many people have been such a key part in helping Elite grow and stay focused on our purpose. Many people have singled out today, but please remember that it really does take a village. A village of volunteers, employers, donors, and so much more. With that same help, Elite will continue to serve in the future to meet our goal to continue to make a positive difference in the lives of people. I'm so excited about this next phase of my life. I'm not tired. I actually, I can write again. Some of you might just read it. I believe that the sky's the limit. And I thank all of you, and God bless you for all coming out and your support over the years. I ask you to keep it going and to give honor. God is good all the time. Thank you. Scientists want to know how COVID-19 is impacting people for the longer term, and they want to seek help from residents in central Illinois as well. It's part of a National Institutes of Health study to better understand, treat, and prevent so-called long COVID. We learned much more about that effort this past week from lead researchers with the University of Illinois College of Medicine. Good afternoon, and welcome to the University of Illinois College of Medicine, Peoria. Advancing research, scientific discovery, and innovation has always been at the heart of the core mission of the University of Illinois College of Medicine here in Peoria. As we reflect on our 50-year history of the campus, we've had a number of key milestones with respect to research, discovery, and innovation. The establishment of the Cancer Research Wing in 2010, the federally funded researchers in neuroscience and cancer, the ongoing mentoring and training of future physician scientists and researchers, and strong collaborations with our healthcare systems around research, this is just to name a few. Furthering, furthermore, advancing research and scientific discovery in key areas like cancer, neuroscience, population, clinical effectiveness research, and educational research is one of the, current, one of the 10 current strategic initiatives for UECOP. The pandemic has really highlighted the importance and relevance of research and discovery. The importance of applying scientific principles and the knowledge of these of science to support and protect mankind through the pandemic and vaccination is a great example of that. As a College of Medicine and in Peoria campus, we have been actively engaged with not only the care of patients with COVID, our faculty and staff and learners have been involved with clinical trials related to COVID and they have done multiple community outreach related to COVID. The research that we will be talking about today is an NIH funded program, again, building on the COVID. The title is Researching COVID to Enhance Recovery, called the Recover Trial. Faculty from UECOMP are collaborating with the University of Illinois Chicago faculty who are leading this Illinois-based research consortium called ILINET Recover. This study aims to study the causes, prevention, and treatment strategies for long COVID. 
This study is a perfect example of what UECAMP as an institute of academic medicine brings to Peoria. Opportunities to tap into national resources such as the National Institutes of Health, leveraging the best and the brightest minds and networking with top-tier researchers across disciplines such as faculty from the University of Illinois College of Medicine, Chicago, and the University of Illinois Chicago campus, collaborating with our local care affiliates, including OSF Healthcare and Unity Point Health, working with our partners in, our com in community health, the Peoria County Health Department and community-based organization to ensure that we are reaching community members regardless of zip code, socioeconomic status, and add to scientific knowledge and discovery as we further our understanding of long COVID. So being part of this trial is not only important for UECOMP, but very important for our community. So now I would like to introduce and welcome Dr. Sarah Stewart de Ramirez, who is a co-principal investigator of the Illinet Recover and UECOMP's Associate Dean for Population Health, Health Equity and Innovation to provide additional details on the study and the impact on the community. Thank you. Thank you, Dean Ayer, and thank you everyone for coming today. Uh, so when a new disease is discovered, it really takes time and a whole lot of intention to purposely define that disease. So to understand what it is, both from a biologic standpoint, but also a physiologic one, to understand the constellation of symptoms that people experience so that ultimately we as clinicians can put those things together and diagnose someone properly and then treat them. There are lots of diseases out there, but as you know, COVID became a new one the last couple of years. So fully understanding and characterizing all the parts and pieces of it is still work we have to do. One of those aspects that we really don't understand well yet, but is, is really affecting millions of people throughout the world, is something we call PASC. The symptoms of long COVID sometimes are hard to, to understand or put together as a diagnosis, and that's what we're here to discuss today because it's the subject of this, what we call, recover trial. So millions of patients have described these prolonged effects of COVID, symptoms that hang on past a month, sometimes out to a year, symptoms that are things characterized by multiple different failures of organs uh, working together you know, um, to, to put together a symptomatology that we, we describe as long COVID, but we're not really quite sure what it is. In fact, if, if you survey across the country to understand what people characterize as long COVID, you'll find over 200 symptoms that people describe. Things like brain fog, a long-term shortness of breath, inability to sleep, depression, different symptoms, which we know are really, really crucial to people's sort of everyday living that they, they had, they didn't have before, but came about sort of a month out after COVID. Some folks never recovered and others that had relatively few symptoms during um, their diagnosis of COVID actually developed these symptoms much later on and, and have hung on 
uh, for quite some time. So the millions of people that have had this prolonged long COVID, we know have been without a place to go, uh, without a doctor to talk to, to understand and fully characterize this disease or to have a good treatment for it. And actually, when we think about those most affected, people of color have suffered disproportionately from the downstream effects of COVID. In fact, if you look at our Latino and our African-American communities, they're almost three times as likely to suffer from these symptoms of, of long COVID. So the bottom line is, we just don't understand why some people recover well from COVID and others don't. So the Recover Initiative that we're here to talk to you about today is a national consortium of research institutions across the country chosen by the National Institutes of Health, as Dr. Ayer spoke to, and granted funding for just that purpose, to better understand and define long COVID, the risk, the severity, the trajectory, so that we can better recognize and prevent and treat long COVID in the future. We at the University of Illinois College of Medicine are so excited to be able to be part of the Recover Trial and the Illinet Recover Network. Here in Peoria, we are partnered with UIC Chicago, as Dean Iyer spoke about. They have several community-based sites, and we also, in Peoria, have several community-based sites. Now, if you think about what that means, that means that we will work our hardest throughout the state of Illinois and throughout the country to engage a diverse array of individuals experiencing symptoms of COVID to be able to move forward and define what long COVID is. With the help of all of our community partners that you'll get introduced to today, we're gonna learn more about intentionally including the communities most affected and their experiences with long COVID because we're defining what long COVID is. It makes sense to make sure that all people have a voice when we understand that. It is a true collaboration throughout the country, through the state and also locally as we work here with the Peoria City and County Health Department, OSF Healthcare, Unity Point, and our community-based organizations, which you'll hear from shortly. We hope that you will join us as we work to understand the unique impact of this disease in our community, bringing the discovery and the science to the Peoria community. A monologue on guns and controlling assault weapons in particular. U.S. Senator and Democrat Tammy Duckworth on the floor of the U.S. Senate last week. Two-year-old Aidan McCarthy was laying bloodied and pinned underneath his unconscious father when he was found. Just a toddler, Aidan was still in diapers, had somehow lost one shoe and was down to just one blood-soaked sock with scrapes across his body. It was last Monday, July 4th, and Aiden was rescued from the site of a massacre, from the site of the latest mass shooting that has marred our country and left scarred all, the, and left scarred all those who bore witness to its senseless terror. I was at a nearby parade in Illinois when I heard about the shooting. I rushed to the emergency operations center and was there the moment the police came in 
and told us that two good Samaritans had found this young boy sheltered under his father's body. When Aiden was rescued, he kept asking for his mom and his dad. But tragically, horribly, we later learned that they were never going to be able to comfort him ever again. Both his mother and father were among the seven people murdered during that 4th of July parade shooting in Highland Park. Their names are Irina and Kevin McCarthy. And they, like so many of us, had spent that holiday morning eager to take pride in our country, eager to celebrate the freedom and goodness and greatness that has defined our nation since its first breaths on that 1st July 4th. I woke up today unable to get the image of two-year-old Aiden's one bloodied sock out of my mind. I woke up, as I have every day since that day, unable to stop thinking about his mom or his dad had put on his diaper that morning, just like I've done thousands of times with my own two little girls. I woke up thinking about how when the first shots of that military-style rifle rang out, his parents' first thoughts must have been about saving him, shielding him. So today I come to the floor to say their names and the names of the five other victims, my constituents, who should still be breathing at this very moment but aren't. Catherine Goldstein, Jacqueline Sundheim, Stephen Strauss, Nicholas Toledo Zaragoza, Eduardo Uvaldo, and Irina and Kevin McCarthy. There are too many victims of preventable gun violence to name all of them here. In fact, gun violence is the largest killer of children under the age of 16 in this country. Not disease, but the disease of gun violence. It happens in Buffalo, in Chicago, in Uvalde, in Newtown, in Pittsburgh, in DeKalb, in Virginia Beach, in El Paso, in two different auroras in Las Vegas. It happens in wealthy suburban communities, in low-income rural communities, and in urban areas across our nation. It happens everywhere in America, but almost nowhere outside of this country. It happens so much here that we only hear about it in the national news when a large enough number of people are killed at one time and in one place. Think about that. Every time gun violence occurs, someone decides whether or not the number murdered is worthy of column inches and breaking news graphics on TV. And too often the answer is no because there have been more mass shootings thus far in 2022 than there have been days in the year, and because we as a country have grown numb. We witnessed that just last week in Chicago, as over the holiday weekend, Chicago's death toll climbed even higher than the devastation seen in Highland Park. Yet there was no national outcry. In Chicago's communities, gun violence is now viewed as all too common, and kids can no longer be kids, They've all heard too many stories of toddlers in strollers killed by a stray bullet or parents murdered while picking up their own kids from school. But these everyday gun deaths no longer garner the attention they demand. We've become desensitized, even as elementary schoolers' lives are being stolen and survivors' innocence are lost. Every gun death is a tragedy that can and should be prevented. This is a uniquely American disease, and it requires a national solution. So I'm here on the floor today to plead with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to help keep another toddler from having to cry out for his parents amidst gunshots and terror. To help stop another day of patriotism, another math class, another trip to the grocery store from turning into a living nightmare. 
I plead with them to help prevent all that by passing the assault weapons ban. Legislation that would block the further sale, transfer, manufacture, and importation of military-style assault weapons and high-capacity magazines for civilian use. I spent 23 years in the Army, so I recognize a weapon of war when I see one. These AR-15-style rifles fire small-caliber ammunition at a, at a velocity that can easily penetrate many kinds of body armor, even at a distance. So when an unprotected child is shot with an AR-15 at close range, the results are horrific. And as anyone who's ever carried an M4 into combat understands, the American people should not be misled into thinking that AR-15 rifles are safe for our communities or that a ban on fully automatic machine guns is sufficient to protect our children from the most dangerous weapons of war. Mass shooters are hunting mothers in malls, fathers in theaters, and children in their schools. For that evil purpose, a semi-automatic rifle is the perfect weapon because it is lightweight, portable, and easy to load with high-capacity magazines. It couples the speed of automatically chambering the next round after each shot with maximum accuracy, a combination designed to kill as many people as possible, as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible. So the first thing I thought when I heard the audio of last week's tragedy was that it sounded like war. As I was talking, I happened to look outside the window of my older girl's classroom, only to see my younger daughter walking in a line, following behind the other kids in her class, in the middle of a shelter-in-place drill. And I watched as that little row of three- and four-year-olds crouched down as small as they could get, and my daughter, with her head against the wall, put her hands over her head, learning to protect herself should there be a mass shooting. She's just four years old. And she was already being taught how to survive if someone with a weapon of war comes into the classroom where she's just beginning to learn her ABCs, believing that their right to fire assault, rapper, assault rifles matters more than her right to make it to age five. What I felt was close to horror, and I know other parents have felt the same. I'm far from the only mom who will hug their kids a little tighter while putting them to bed tonight, then spend hours looking up ballistic backpacks to protect my girls in case the worst case scenario becomes reality. But the, hor the horrible truth is, even ballistic backpacks may not stop these rounds. This week alone, hundreds of Illinoisans and survivors from other mass shootings were gathered at the Capitol. These people, mostly moms, are still recovering from major trauma. And they have jobs and childcare responsibilities and no experience lobbying Congress. Yet they made the trip to Washington, D.C. because they know that their children's lives depend on it. And because they're beyond furious at the lack of action to ban these weapons of war that have terrorized all of our communities. What these moms want isn't impossible. It wouldn't even be that difficult if some more folks would just grow a conscience. These parents want us to do better for them, for their kids, for all those in Highland Park last week, and for every person who has so needlessly lost their life to gun violence, whether in a mass shooting or in a tragedy involving a single bullet. The folks at that parade last Monday were there to celebrate life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
Seven of them will never be able to do so again. We have to stop this. We have to end this cycle. And we can take a step forward, a step towards doing so right now by getting these weapons of war off our streets and passing this bill immediately. To anyone who says no, to anyone who objects to passing this bill, I want you to know how you can show off taking pride in our country on a holiday, then turn your back on its citizens one week later. I want you to explain to them why the dollars that you get from the NRA are worth their pain, their tears, their tragedy. He's not so much stepping down as he is stepping aside. That would be Tazewell County State's Attorney Stuart Umholtz, who announced that he would be stepping aside in order to perhaps end up taking a job at a higher place. We caught up with him. WMBD's Will Stevenson caught up with the outgoing prosecutor to find out more about his experience and his plans. For folks who don't know, how long have you been in office as state's attorney, and uh, what led you to take the job? I... I've been in office since 1995. Uh, I have people working for me that weren't born then. Um, so I've been here for a while. And uh, I really, um, when my predecessor became a judge, um, I decided that this was an opportunity for me to uh, take on a very challenging responsibility that initially proved to be a lot more challenging than I thought it would be. Yeah. Does it seem like that that's sort of, a, I guess, when you're an attorney, that it's a different mindset being sort of a being a prosecutor and kind of dealing with county government? And then will it be sort of a different mindset, I guess, presuming you become judge in November? Right. And and the likelihood of becoming a judge is, is quite high since I'm the only one running. Um, but I will tell you that I think there's one common thread in being successful in the job that I'm in now and also being successful as a judge, and that is being decisive, being able to make tough decisions under sometimes tough circumstances. And I've had uh, quite a bit of experience with that, and I hope to carry that over to the bench. Yeah, I imagine that especially when it comes time to, let's say, in a bench trial, you find you have to find somebody guilty or you have to impose what could be a maybe potentially lengthy sentence on someone for some particular crime. That's that I, I imagine that's probably a little more difficult than I might think it would be. Uh, it certainly is, and I, I think that it's a heavy responsibility. I know that individuals that have left uh, the Office of State's Attorney tell me that you don't realize how much weight you have on your shoulders until you walk out of that door and leave that weight with somebody else. Let's talk about the letter uh, you submitted uh, yesterday uh, to the county board. Uh, that that was pretty much um, sort of a timely type of a thing, right? So that you can uh, you can officially uh, have the state's attorney's office on the ballot in November, correct? Yes, that was important for me uh, that it be on the ballot. It's also important. I you know I've spent a long time developing a culture in this office of do what is right and do it well, and Kevin Johnson has been a part of that process over the past 27 years, and uh, he's been my chief assistant since 2006. And it was important for me to have a transition plan. I think every business should have a succession plan because we're all replaceable 
and I've always viewed myself as being replaceable. And it was important to me to have someone trained and qualified to take over these responsibilities. And as I said in my letter, even more importantly, Kevin Johnson has the good judgment and wisdom to uh, seek justice for our community. What would you talk a little bit more about those attributes that you feel that he has uh, that he has going potentially going into the job aside from the, those years of experience, which are important as it is? Yeah, I think I think you learn a lot. You gain a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge just from making decisions, from reviewing evidence, from making charging decisions. And it's not as simple as just saying that the evidence supports this maximum offense that we could charge. Um, we're not machines here, we're people, and what we're supposed to seek is justice, and justice means that we should seek an appropriate disposition, which means that we have to make good charging decisions that reflect uh, the conduct, that reflect the needs of the community, and also when seeking a disposition, we should have those same considerations in mind to come to a conclusion that supports some sense of justice for our community. So um, we might, most people think of a negotiated plea as being something less than what the person would receive from the judge. But once you calculate the value of certainty, because there's a value that all of us place upon uh, knowing what is going to happen in a case, then, then I think you begin to have a better understanding as to why this is a good way to resolve cases, because it's fair. It, it takes into consideration uh, the value of certainty, and, um, and I think that's what people need to keep in mind when they think about negotiated pleas. And how do you see that uh, kind of that mindset going into a going into becoming a judge? I guess I, I imagine, and I've seen times where you know a, a judge hasn't agreed with an or has rejected a negotiated plea deal and things like that, thinking that maybe something stronger should be done. Uh, I guess that's kind of thinking with the other end of your your brain when you become a judge, right? Right, right. I think that. I think by having served as a state's attorney for the time that I have, I think as a judge, I hope as a judge, I will respect the decisions that are made uh, by the prosecution. I'll, I'll respect and know what goes into the decisions that a defense attorney has made in presenting uh, a negotiated plea to the court, and, and then respect that input, but then realize that I have a role to play as a judge, and I need to make a decision based upon that. But I'm not going to be—I'm not going to disregard what other professionals are recommending in a case. But I'm going to take that into consideration, and then make my own decision. I, I don't want to take a lot more of your time here, so I'll kind of uh, wrap up uh, with one more question here. What would you consider to be, in the time you've been a state's attorney, your your biggest accomplishment? I imagine maybe sometimes, you know, a big accomplishment is just trying to keep up with the times at times, right? Right, and, and I will tell you, and I, I'll use a little bit of humor, because that's what has helped me get through 27 years as state's attorney. And I will tell you that... Uh, uh, the first time that I was ever quoted on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, it was when 
I was informed that I was the first state's attorney in the state of Illinois to prosecute a sitting Supreme Court justice. In fact, he was the chief justice at the time. And my response was, lucky me. And, <laughs> and I wasn't intending to be humorous when I said that, but it was to recognize that we don't look for these cases. Um, any accomplishments that I have made over my 27 years as state's attorney, uh, they're not my individual uh, accomplishments. It's the result of a good team of professionals working together, law enforcement, um, uh, citizens, and, and I've had great prosecutors in this office. So that success is spread amongst all of those individuals. But I think what I learned most about that particular case was about myself and was about the fact that um, I adopted a philosophy that no matter who a person was as a defendant, uh, that they should get the same consideration, no more or no less than any other person that would be faced with that charge. And I've tried to kind of keep that as kind of my mantra in, in uh, being fair to everybody and not giving anybody any special treatment. Is that the advice you would give to Kevin, uh, assuming that he officially becomes state's attorney after November? Yes, definitely. But I'll tell you what, and again, humor is what gets me through this. My advice to Kevin is he needs to have a Kevin. Mm. Because that that's what has allowed me to be successful since 2006. He's been my chief assistant, and I tell you what, he's he's a great part of the team. One of the best decisions I ever made was selecting him as my chief assistant. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Weekend Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For instant news 24-7, follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at 1470WMBD.com. I'm Cooper Banks, WMBD News.